Welcome to the Building to Scale podcast, where we bring real entrepreneur stories that showcase the challenges and successes in building and scaling an entrepreneurial business. Our host, Jeff Chastain, is a business transformation coach with Admentis, where he coaches business leaders and their teams with a proven set of principles and tools helping them gain clarity in and get more of what they want from their business. Make sure to stick around until the end of the show, and we will reveal how you can become our next guest. Hey, welcome, everybody. Jeff Chastain here with the Building the Scale podcast, where we get the opportunity, really, as always, just to talk with other entrepreneurial business leaders, influencers, just hearing their stories of challenges and successes as they've grown and scaled their own businesses. But today with me, I have Michelle Seiler Tucker here out of the New Orleans area. So Michelle, first off, welcome. And thanks for taking a few minutes out of your afternoon here to talk with us. Thank you for having me, Jeff. So like I said earlier on before we jumped on, we've we've talked about uh, exit planning and kind of the, the M&A field several times, but I'm, I'm curious to get your your take on this, but I guess kind of starting off more, how did you get into that field or what, what kind of got you started in the, in the M&A business? So I've always owned, I've always been, I've always been an entrepreneur owning many different businesses. I used to be in franchise sales, franchise development, franchise consulting. I was a partner in a franchisor's business. And then I had lots of buyers who didn't want to buy an existing business wanted to buy, I'm sorry, didn't want to buy new franchise, you know, not every franchise is not for everybody. In fact, it's not for a lot of people. <laughs> and yeah. so that's really when I started my mergers and acquisitions firm, because I had so many buyers requesting existing businesses. And that's when I transitioned into M&A. Interesting. So you're looking at more from the, the buy side necessarily than the, the sell side? No, we, we represent <laughs> a lot of sellers, but I had so many buyers coming to me asking me for existing businesses. And since we just specialize in franchise sales, consulting development, we didn't really have any existing businesses for sale. But that's when I opened up my friend, my M&A firm and decided to start selling businesses. Interesting. Okay. So again, we kind of talked beforehand, most of the, the business owners and stuff I'm dealing with are looking to grow and, and scale their business, moving it out. But mm-hmm. very rarely do those people be thinking, are those people thinking about exit planning? And I'm curious what your, what your take is on kind of why don't business owners think about exit planning very often? Because they don't really think about the future <laughs> you know. <laughs> and they treat their, ba- their business as their baby. They don't really treat it as their most valuable asset to grow to exit, you know, and Steve Forbes says 80% of businesses won't sell eight out of 10 businesses will not sell. And the main reason for that is because business owners have never planned their exit. They never think about selling until a catastrophic event has occurred. Rather, that's health issues, partners dispute, divorce, death, external is this pandemic. So lots of business owners want to sell now when they're not doing well. You know, the worst time to sell your business is when you're in a catastrophic event. The best time to sell is when your business is thriving and doing well. We just had a company call us from Dallas, um, gosh, a couple months ago, and the wife called me that the husband dropped dead of a heart attack, had a construction business and left him with a mountain of debt. Oh, wow. So she wanted me to sell the business for her, but he didn't have a business. He had no employees. All the data was in his head. So when he died, the business died, you know, and that's the problem. Business owners have to change their mindset. They got to stop thinking about their business as their baby. You know, your children are at home. Your babies are at home. Go home, kiss and love on them. But build your business as a sellable asset 
and set your family members up for success. Now, she's not going to be able to get out of this debt because her husband never thought about succession. He never thought about building his business to exit. He never thought about, gosh, what happens if something happens to me? Is my business sellable? And that's business owners have to change their mindset. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense because it's like you said, it's it's I always kind of joke. Everybody's going to exit the business one way or the other. It's just a question as to whether it's on your terms or not. But yeah, it's you never know when that's necessarily going to happen. Something may happen in life that you just need to sell it or like you're well, saying, other life circumstances. In, in all likelihood, the business is your most valuable asset, you know, so you got to treat it as such, just like your portfolio of investments with your financial advisor. You treat that like a, a pretty valuable investment, right? You need to treat your business like a valuable investment. But business owners think, oh, it's going to it's gonna last forever. I'm always going to love doing it. Well, that's not the case. So you always, you know, whatever goes up must come down. You always have to build your business with the end in mind. Like no, it makes sense. Says, start with the end in mind. So I'm curious, kind of along those lines, what's the... What's the right time or the best time kind of a thing to start thinking about selling or start putting that plan you know, in place? I always say like in my new book, Exit Rich, that's coming out in June, the best time to start your exit plan is when you start your business from day one of buying or starting a business. And it's kind of, you know, let's go through that real quick. So it's kind of like if you want to drive somewhere in Dallas, what do you do? You pull out your phone, you go to Google Maps and you plug in your destination, right? Yeah. If you don't plug in your destination, you're going to be re- driving around in circles. <laughs> Same thing with business owners. They don't plan to fail. They fail to plan. So they need to plug in their destination. They need to determine what is my end game? What is my desired sales price? What do I want to sell my business for? And then just pick a number. And business owners always get hung up on a number. Don't get hung up on a number. Just pick a number. Let's say you want to sell for $10 million. Great. Now you have a start of a plan. Then the next thing you need to know in a GPS exit model is, where, where am I starting from? What is my current location? In other words, what is my current evaluation? And most business owners have no idea what their business is worth because they never got a business evaluation. You know, we go to the doctor once a year to make sure our heart's still ticking and we're still kicking. We drive a car to the mechanic to get an annual tune-up, but we never get an annual business valuation checkup. That's financial suicide. Because there are events that increase valuation and there are events that decrease valuation. So you always want to know what your business is worth. So let's say you want to sell for 10 million, that's your destination, and your current valuation is worth 2 million. Now, what do you need to know is time frame. Let's say you want to do this in seven years. Then the next step is determine who are your buyers going to be. Notice I said buyers, not buyer. Because business owners come to me all the time and they're like, oh, I have a buyer. I just want you to represent me. I can guarantee you <laughs> that in all likelihood, that buyer will never close on the sale of your business. Hmm. So you need backup buyers. You never want to put all your eggs in one buyer's basket. Plus, how do you ever maximize value if you can't create competition because you have one buyer? So there's five different types of buyers. You need to know which buyers are right for your business from day one of buying or starting your company. So first-time buyers, 90% of buyers are first-time buyers. They buy small businesses. They don't buy $10 million companies. Then number two is turnaround specialists. They buy distressed assets. They buy businesses that are failing. They're not going to pay $10 million for a company. 
Then number three is PEGs, private equity groups. They buy based on platforms and add-ons. They typically won't even look at a platform for less than $3 million in EBITDA. EBITDA is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, just in case your listeners don't know what that is. <laughs> and uh, you'd be surprised. A lot of business owners don't know what EBITDA is. Well, they, they see the big acronym, and but beyond that, yeah, I don't know what that <laughs> is. It's just a big accounting term that my CPA hopefully knows or my accountant knows. <laughs> hopefully. Yeah. And then the fourth type of virus, competitors and strategics, and they typically pay the highest multiple. And the fifth type of buyer is um, serial entrepreneurs. And these are sophisticated entrepreneurs. They're industry agnostic and they just chase EBITDA. So now once you know, okay, well, these three out of the five are good buyers for me, the next thing to do is reverse engineer your plan and figure out, well, if I want to sell for $10 million, where's my gross revenues need to be? Where's my COGS? Where's my EBITDA need to be? To sell for $10 million, you have to have an EBITDA of at least $2 million. Then you, you have to look at your business and look at your buyers and say, okay, what type of synergies do these buyers look for? What are they willing to pay top dollar for? What will make them not buy a business versus buy a business? It's kind of like when you start your company and you sell, say you're going to sell this widget. What do you do when you go into business to sell this widget? You identify who your target market is, right? Yep. And then you build your marketing, everything you do around that target market. Same thing with selling your business. It's no different, really. Makes sense? Uh, yeah, no, it definitely makes sense. So I'm curious when we're talking about doing that longer term or building that longer term plan out, if you go the, the widget route, the manufacturing route, you've obviously got assets and stuff like that in the business, but we see a lot more businesses these days that are the, the professional services route. It's the, it's the accountant or the, the, the lawyer that's starting their own firm. What do you build or how do you look at value in a firm like that that's all professional services? Well, the first way you look at value in a firm like that, because it's not really about the assets, it's about, you know, does the business operate on all six cylinders, all six P's, the ST six P's that we talk about in my book, Exit Rich. And then for a service business, the big question is, does that owner have a business or does that owner have a glorified job in which he goes to work at every day? Yeah. And most of them have a glorified job in which they go out every day, not a business that actually works for them. Definitely. Yeah. So, so I'm curious like, what your your take is on, on moving from that transition of the owner having everything in their head, the owner being the business to actually being a well, I get them to asset. run on the I get them to run on the six P's. So let's talk about the six P's real quick. Okay. I get them to build a business on the six P's because if they don't build a business on the six P's, they'll never be able to to, to build a sustainable business and never sustain, plus they can never scale. And when they're ready, they can never sell. I mean, we have a dentist that came to us, been in business for 50 years, has three dental hygienists, and he wants to sell his business. I said, look, I can sell your business, but I can't maximize value because you're the only dentist and you'll have to stay on for two to three years. And the price will be contingent upon you staying on. The, the offer will be contingent upon you staying on. He goes, honey, I'm not staying, and neither are my three daughters who are his dental hygienist. Okay. And I said, well, then you have nothing to sell. Yeah. When you all leave, the, the, the patients leave. So a lot of business owners just don't think about this kind of stuff. So the first P is people. The first P is people. We have to identify, do we have a job or do we have a business? Most business owners have a job. <laughs> so we really work with our owners to focus on their strengths, hire their weaknesses, 
And we also get them to make, to hire the right people in the right seats, you know? And if you're a service provider, if you're an attorney, you have to have more attorneys. If you're an MD, you have to have more doctors. If you're a chiropractor, you can't look, we had a practice for sale that we could have sold probably 10 times over a chiropractor's clinic. And, and the owner who's a chiropractor said, well, these doctors have been here for, you know, 15, 20 years, they're staying. Then I would send buyer in there and the doctor and the doctor would tell my client, no, we're not staying. We just tell him that to appease him. (laughs) (laughs) So we want to make sure that, you know, these service professionals, you're not the only plumber, you're not the only electrician, you're not the only chiropractor, you're not the only dentist. You got to actually have a business of people. You don't build a business, you build people and people build a business. So you have to have the right people in the right seats. And then you have to ask the who question, Jeff, who opens the door, who handles customer service, marketing, accounting, legal, quality control, manufacturing, logistics, environmental, the list goes on and on. But the clue is you should never be next to the who because you want to build a business from without you. Yep. So that's number one is people. And that's the biggest P really, because so many business owners, so many entrepreneurs are doing everything and the business is a thousand percent dependent upon them. You will never grow unless you let go of the control. Yeah, it's it's that side and the other side of it. It seems like any issue I ever deal with with business always some has some kind of people components. Like you said, right people, right seats. It's it's the wrong person. It's the wrong seat, whatever. It's just, okay, there's a reason your business is not moving forward. And it almost always has something to do with people involved. So Almost yeah. every time, yep. And then the second P is, is product. And this is your industry, your product, your service. You have to ask yourself, is your product, your industry on the way up or on the way out? Do you have an Amazon? You're in your prime, which if you're in your prime, that's when you sell. <laughs> so many <laughs> business owners wait and then they want to sell at the end. And that's a terrible time to sell. So are you at your prime or do you have a blockbuster and you're about to go bust? And because of this pandemic right now, there's a lot of industries going out of business. So I always tell my clients, ask you know, yourself three transformational questions. Number one, ask yourself, what business are you in? You know, Amazon did this back in the 90s. Amazon asked themselves, what business are we in? And they said, we're in book fulfillment business. We fulfill book orders. Then the second question is, what do you do better than everybody else? What is your USP, your unique selling proposition? And Amazon said, we do fulfillment better than anyone else. So then the next third obvious question is, what business should we be in? Because everybody's got to pivot. You know, it used to be when I wrote my very first book in 2013, Sell Your Business for More Than It's Worth, I did the research and learned that 95% of all startups would fail within yep. one to five years. We know that. But when I wrote Exit Rich in 2019, in 2020, I did the exact same research and learned that the business landscape has flip-flopped. Now it's only 30% of businesses that in that first one of um, five years, startups will go out of business, only 30%. That's great for startups, but listen to this. Out of 27.6 million companies, those businesses have been in business 10 years or longer, 70, 70% of them will go out of business. 70, now you hear about the big box companies all the time, like Toys R Us. 75 years goes out of business. Kmart, Steinmart, Pier 1, Godiva closing down 1,500 locations. So 
I just heard it that the Disney store is closing. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it's definitely yeah. a changing landscape, but it's it's a changing landscape and, and business owners are exiting. And that's just the public companies. Yeah, I was media just asking, doesn't tell you. Yeah. Media is not telling you about the private businesses on every street corner, every town, every state because they don't care. <laughs> and these business owners are exiting poor. They're selling yeah. for pennies on a dollar. They're going to close their business down or even worse you know, file bankruptcy. So the number one reason for that is because of lack of AIM, A-I-M. Business owners stop innovating and marketing. They yeah. stop innovating and marketing. And that's in product. So that's why you should always ask yourself those questions. What business should I be in? Because you have to pivot, you know, and you should always have congruent revenue streams. You should never put your eggs in just one basket. Yeah. So even, well, even just Amazon, you mentioned there going from bookseller to everything now kind of a thing. It's just like yeah. they, they would never have taken on that kind of market share if they just focused forever on books and never. It, it's good to stay small for initial, but still, like you said, you got to be able to pivot and adjust because the market's moving constantly as well. Well, those three transformational questions is what transformed them to a small little bookseller to a multi-billion dollar worldwide conglomerate. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to be able to pivot. Otherwise, you're going to become obsolete, like nothing lasts forever. You know, you're either dying or growing, which is why you should build your business to sell, because there's five ways to exit the, exit a business. It used to be that the um, owners would pass their business on to their family. So from generation to generation, less than 10% of businesses are transferred today. Oh, wow. Less okay. than 10% because the kids don't want your business. Yeah. <laughs> they don't want your business. They want to go out and create their own masterpiece. ESOP, that's less than 10% selling to your employees. Uh -huh. You know, you could hire a manager and, you know, try to just inspect what you expect and hope the manager does their job. Um, or the, the favorable option is selling 100% or selling, you know, 60, 70, 80, 90%. Which Interesting. Is okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I've, I've heard the, the horror stories more than once about owner thinks his kids are going to take it over and then they comes out. Yeah. We really don't want this. So yeah. Yeah. And they don't really have those conversations early on. They don't have them till later. And then when the owner's like, Oh, my kids are not taking my business. I need to sell. He doesn't really have a sellable business here. She doesn't really yeah. have a sellable business. So this is why you should be planning your exit and having those conversations from the beginning. No, no, it makes a lot of sense there. So I think we did people and product. What else? What processes, processes. Uh, yeah, my favorite. Processes will make or break a company. So you got people is really big and processes is, is you know, they kind of go hand in hand, right? And yeah. where business owners usually get, well, most business owners don't think of processes. It's kind of like exit strategy. They don't think about processes. Like they don't think about exit strategy until something bad happens in their company. And then they're like, oh, I need a process for that. You know, we, ha we have a client that had a catastrophic event happen on the manufacturing floor where an employee got hit and he was served with lawsuits, got hurt really, really bad, lost an extremity. And uh, lawsuits were coming down. The business was not sellable. And the seller says to me, you know, we really need a, a health and safety process on the manufacturing floor. And I'm like, really? <laughs> You're thinking about that now? <laughs> You're a little late. <laughs> yep. So processes are huge, you know, and most business owners get this wrong because most business owners design their processes around their own agenda. Okay. Chiropractors are a perfect example of that. Well, they set their hours based upon when they want to work and when they want to play golf. 
you know, we'll open Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from this time to this time, this time to this time. You know, the bottom line is processes should be designed around the customer experience. Okay. Did you ever watch the movie The Founder based upon the McDonald Brothers? Oh, okay. Yeah. The, yeah. You watched that movie? Yeah. So it's, again, it's just systematizing the business at that point. How do we hand it off? But it's business? systematizing the business based upon the customer's experience. Yeah. Back in the 50s, the McDonald Brothers said, we want to create a fast food restaurant. We need a fast food, fast food system based upon this experience. They want their clients to experience great tasting food that's hot, fast, 30 seconds or less, yeah. right? That's what they want their customers to experience. So any McDonald's, you can eat at McDonald's anywhere in the world and pretty much get the same experience. Same thing, yeah. How many times have you been on the phone with a company, whether it's a bank, a social media company, retail outlet, where you have to push all these different prompts on the phone to get a live person? When you get a person, you tell them their story. Oh, let me transfer you. Oh, let me transfer you again. Oh, let me transfer you. And you've been transferred like 10 times and they still haven't solved your problem, right? And they keep asking you the same questions over and over. because they, they asking you the same questions. Yeah. So all those processes designed with the customer experience in mind, no, that's hey, happiness. No, it's like Zappos. Zappos had the best slogan ever. Zappos was we create happiness. We have happy employees, so therefore we have happy clients, <laughs> you know, and they've been over backwards to create happy experiences because you want raving fans. If you don't create wild experiences for your clients, your competitor will do it for you. Yep. But these days, customers are rock, walking away from businesses experiencing a horrible, horrible experiences versus the other way around. Yeah. So you, really should, no, you really should take the time to identify, like McDonald's did, what do you want your customers to experience? And then once you know that and you're crystal clear, then you'll design your processes around that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I leverage the McDonald's example quite often. It's, it's in a lot of ways, it's real easy to build a better experience than McDonald's. The challenge is keeping it up because you, you go to the brand new restaurant the first time and service is great and all that kind of stuff. But once you go back the second, third time and service is dropped off, the experience is not the same, then it drops off your to-go list, kind of a thing there, or to-do list. And that's, I mean, like you said earlier, you can go to any McDonald's and get the exact same experience the exact same service. It may not be top-notch craft burgers kind of stuff like that, but that's not what they're designed around. And you, it's, it's that they're, they're designed around great tasting food. It tastes good. That's hot, fast. That's, yeah. that's their experience. And they can get rid of somebody. They can fire somebody and replace somebody within 30 minutes and have them working. Yeah. Because and to me, that's, that's the biggest key there because yeah. you pick your normal chiropractor, your normal attorney's office or whatever, they don't have that kind of ability to sit there and just effectively swap interchangeable parts out like that. And that's, that's really a, a struggle for them to grow at that point. Cause you think corporate America, they bring on somebody, bring on a new employee and go, go shadow so-and-so for three months and learn what they do. It's like entrepreneurial kind of business doesn't have, have those resources to be able to do that. Right. So you want to make sure your policies and procedure manuals are designed you want to make sure let, let me back up. You want to make sure your policies and procedures are designed with the customer experience in mind. They must be productive and efficient. And then, moreover, you got to have them papered. You know, have your we're selling a company for fifty million dollars right now, and they have very little policy and procedure manuals. So you want to make sure you have a policy and procedure manuals and SOP checklist for every department, employee handbooks, non competes, employee agreements, etc. Yeah. 
No, and I, I definitely agree with that. And I, I like the the idea of putting that in. We've had lots of discussions around the difference. And because a lot of times people will look at checklists and stuff like that and say, okay, that's that's taking the creativity out of my business. That's taking the fun out of my business. But you look at it, it's like, okay, we run, we fly airplanes based upon checklists. We do surgery based upon checklists kind of a thing. Checklists have to be there. It's it's not taking the creativity out. You You still pay that doctor a lot of money to do that surgery kind of a thing. You're still paying for the expertise that you can have in your business while still leveraging that checklist and giving you giving you the value there to where somebody else can come in and repeat that process, repeat that system. Right. So the next P is proprietary. You know, businesses that um, have an EBIT of under a million dollars are typically valued anywhere from one to four times multiple, really more like one, three, three and a half, unless you have a lot of proprietary assets. Businesses, now if you're a SaaS company, you get a multiple of revenues, but everything else is multiple of EBITDA. And then if you're SaaS, I mean, I'm sorry, if you have a EBITDA of over a million, then the multiple typically starts around four and a half, five and up. Again, depending upon the proprietary assets. Yep. So this next P is proprietary. This is the highest value driver. Okay, this will take you from a five to an eight multiple. Branding, so there's six pillars to proprietary. Branding is number one. The more well-branded you are, the more I can sell your company for, as long as your brand is relevant in the mind of the consumer. Meaning, right. is anything is anybody paying anything for Blockbuster? Not these days, yeah. <laughs> I know, everybody says not today. Not today, not ever. <laughs> Nobody's paying any money yeah. for Blockbuster because Blockbuster went bust. The most valuable brand in the world is, do you know? Actually, <laughs> I was going to say, I think Dallas Cowboys actually came out one of the top ones here. I don't know if that's the most one, but yeah. Dallas Cowboys? Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're, they're not. They're nowhere close to anybody okay. in the top. So it's on your list. Well, it's not my list. It's it's the list. Um, number one is Apple. Makes sense. Yeah. Apple is worth $359 billion. And Dallas Cowboys is not even in the top. No, that was the the, fran- the the sports world list was what I was. Oh, yeah, okay. they're, they're on the top of that one regularly. Yeah, when, so so Apple is worth about three. You just have your mind on the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. Well, <laughs> not the cheerleaders, no, but definitely football. Hey, it's a brand new season. We're gonna win the Super Bowl every year. <laughs> so there, so Apple's worth about three hundred fifty nine billion. That's just the brand. That's not assets, inventory, cash flow, real estate. That's just the brand. Yeah, trademarks are very valuable. Trademark your podcast. Do you have a federal trademark on your podcast, Jeff? No, don't have at this point. So that's something we'll have to look at. Yeah, I'll buy it and sell it back to you. So (laughs) trademarks are very important, but this is what most business owners do. They go to GoDaddy. They find that .com. They get really excited. So they'll go to Texas and they'll get a Texas trademark. You know, they, they have their domain, but they never check their federal database. Okay. So it's very important to check the federal database because you can be in business years and years and years and all of a sudden receive a cease and desist letter. Same thing with podcasts. You don't want to build up that brand, build up that brand, and all of a sudden try to go to the federal trademark and realize you can't get it. Yeah. So you want to make sure you protect your IP. And that's podcasts. That's your company name, your slogan, anything that's unique to you, like the ST6Bs or the STGPS exit model. Um, also products, people don't think about this. Like we have a business we're selling between 60 to 70 million and they have 12 different products and each product has a federal trademark and each product 
is unique to that retail chain. So they have a product inside Walmart. They have a product inside Target. They have a product in some, some of the major grocery stores. And so that's very valuable. Strategists and competitors will pay more money for that. Interesting. Same thing for patents. Do you watch Shark Tank? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And what does every single shark always ask? Do you have a patent on that? Do you have a patent on it? Yep. Okay. Do you have a patent pending? In fact, their offer is always contingent upon you proving that you actually have the patent. Makes sense. So yeah. We sold a business for $18 million that wasn't making that much money, but it had 18 patents. Yeah. Well, the patent's got value for sure. Yeah. And then contracts. Contracts are very valuable and people, most business owners don't realize this. Manufacturing contracts, distribution, vendor agreements, any type of exclusive contract, franchisor that has franchisees. Client contracts are the most valuable of all to buyers, especially if they have a subscription model with reoccurring revenue. Gotcha. Yeah. But here's the caveat to contracts. Most business, I've never met a business owner in the last 20 years over a thousand deals that actually has a transferability clause that says this contract is transferable to the new entity. So if the buyer doesn't agree to do an asset sale and the customers don't agree to sign consent to transfer, your deal could fall apart. Everything's, yep. Databases are also very lucrative, um, especially if that database has been nurtured and it can be retargeted and repurposed. Facebook paid 19 billion for WhatsApp. Yeah, that's, that's, that's information was, these days is huge. And WhatsApp was hemorrhaging money. I mean, they were hemorrhaging, but they had a billion users. So what we're talking about right now are synergies that buyers are willing to pay a lot of money for. So Facebook was willing to pay 19 billion for a billion users because they knew they can monetize an ROI on the sell of that business. Yeah. Celebrity endorsements are big. Any type of celebrity endorsements, um, we're working with a client that is on Oprah's favorite things. That's huge. That's huge. Celebrities can only endorse one vertical at a time. Like Cindy Crawford only does rooms to go. Jennifer Aniston only endorses um, Aveeno skincare. Okay. So, and even sports celebrities are big, huge. Radio personalities are big because again, that's prime real estate. So if you have a skincare line and it's being endorsed by Glenn Beck. He can only endorse one skincare. So that's prime real estate. Yeah. You can't get in that spot unless they fall off. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You follow me? So that's like prime real estate. Same thing with e-commerce businesses. Any of those top positions on Wayfair or Etsy or Amazon or eBay. Um, I, we once sold a company that had a third position on Wayfair. They were crushing it. Huge, yeah. And the strategists are willing to pay more money for that position because they want to try to get their products in there too. Make sense? Yep, definitely interesting. Yeah, it, it definitely makes sense because it's, like you said, it's real estate at that point, practically. It's yeah. your visibility. It's proprietary real estate. Yep. And so then the next P is Patreons. This is your customer base. Most businesses follow the 80-20 rule, where 80% of your revenue comes from 20% of your clients. Yep. Most businesses have customer concentration. They don't have customer diversification. We're selling a business right now in a 60 to $70 million range that has customer concentration. 65% of the revenue is one customer. Oh, that's dangerous. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> we're going to sell it, but it makes it very difficult. 
you know, no. big deal. we have to find, look, we, we sold a oil manufacturing business that was appraised for $9.8 million. 70% of the revenue was tied up in BP. Yep. And so we have 550 buyers. We narrowed it down to 12 LOIs, but every LOI had clawbacks and was contingent upon that BP contract until we found a strategic who had summer products and services and been trying to get in BP for years and years that could never get in the door. They wanted to outbid everybody else because they knew once they were in front of BP with this current company, they could get their own products yeah. and services in BP. Yeah. And then they could catapult that business to the next level. So they paid $15 million for 70% of the business which was 126% more than the appraised price. So you get lucky on occasion, <laughs> put it that way. <laughs> that was not luck. That was skill too. <laughs> I mean, it was for sure. Yeah, but it was yeah, a you got to find out one person that wants. Well, that's what selling a business is. It really is like finding that need on a haystack kind of buyer yeah. is willing to, I'll bet everybody else, but that's how we're able to create bidding wars. Um, and then the last P, the most important P to all entrepreneurs is profits. But yeah. the reason I put profits last is because profits, lack of profits is never the problem. Lack of profits is never the problem. It's a symptom of not operating one of the other five P's. Yeah. I have clients come to me and say, Michelle, I have a profits problem. I'm like, no, you have a people problem. <laughs> no, you have a process problem. You don't have a profits problem. Profits are not the problem. They're the symptom of. Yeah. And if, you, if you're not crossing your T's and dotting your I's, I mean, let's talk about processes. If you don't have checks and balances and you're trusting the person you put to oversee your money, but you're not expecting what you expect or you're trusting but not verifying, chances are you might, they might embezzle from you. And that happens time and time. I think it's one out of every five companies gets embezzled. Oh, yikes. Yeah, I hadn't heard that stat. But yeah, no, it's, I, I, mine's, I got four P's on mine, but yeah, profits is, is the equal side that, okay, like you said, as much as we get the other stuff put together, that results in the profits on the, the final side. So yeah, profits is rarely the driver, but no, that's, that's, I like that all tied together because that's, that's, like I said, that's a similar model what I do. It's different terminology, but yeah, it's, it's always all of that building up towards the profitability profits of the company. And to me, that's that's the ultimate measure of a company at that point. Too many people I find look at revenues. Hey, we're a, we're a $5 million revenue company. It's like, you can be a $5 million revenue company with 50 people or a $5 million revenue company with 200 people. And one's a lot more fun to work from and work with and probably sell for that matter. It's really not about the revenues. It's about the, it's about the EBITDA. <laughs> yeah, no, it really does come down to it. It's, you can have 100 million revenues, revenues and lose money. Yeah, no, I've, I've seen that one several times before as well. It's like, okay, you're, you're working yourself straight out of business here with those revenue numbers. So that's, that's interesting. So definitely, definitely good information. Definitely appreciate the, the insight and everything there. Um, I'm curious, kind of a thing there, if you were to come back and give an entrepreneurial business leader one or two things that they ought to be, hey, make sure you look at this or make sure you think about this. What's what's kind of your top one or two to for somebody thinking about long-term still exit, but still now that we've started putting it in their mind, what, what should they be looking at or well, thinking about I think, first? You know, one of the biggest things that you should be looking at long-term is aligning yourself with the M&A expert who can do an annual valuation checkup for you 
and making sure that you're operating on all six cylinders, all six P's and building those synergies that buyers are willing to pay top dollar for. So this is the, this is the annual doctor's checkup. This is the annual doctor's checkup because here's the deal. You don't want to get, uh, you know, five, six, seven years down the road and a catastrophic event occurs or something happens and you're nowhere close to where you, what you want to sell for. So every year you should be taking your temperature and finding <laughs> out, you know, exactly, you know, where are you on your evaluation and where are you in relationship to your desired sales price and how much you're really wanting to sell for. And that's what you should be paying attention to every single year. And every single year, you should be building those synergies on the six Bs that buyers are willing to outbid others for and pay you top dollar for. You can't wait for like, say, all of a sudden you go, okay, I want to sell my business in a year. Yeah. It doesn't really work that way. You're never going to be able to maximize value like that. So the thing to pay attention to is your GPS exit model. Get that valuation checkup once a year. Make sure you're building the synergies and make sure you're operating all six Ps. Make sure you're actually building a business and not a job because buyers don't want to buy a job. They want to buy a business. No, it makes perfect sense. And there's there's a lot of different ways I'd, I'd, I'd love to dig into because there's just so much with this kind of topic and everything. But if um, people want to find out more about you or look at that business evaluation, what's the what's the best way for them to find you? Well, the first thing I want to tell them about is how to get exit rich, because that's what they should do, number one. Okay. Um, so we're in, a, we're in pre-sales with exit rich right now. It comes out in June. Uh, just to tell you a little bit about exit rich, Steve Forbes endorsed exit rich, saying it's a goldmine for entrepreneurs, as most entrepreneurs leave way too much money on the table when it goes, when it gets right, when I get ready to exit their business. And then Sharon Lecter is my co-author who wrote Rich Dad, Poor Dad with Robert Kiyosaki. So she's a five-time New York Times bestselling author, plus a CPA, financial literacy expert, and the advisor to many different presidents. She wrote the mentors um, corner after each chapter, plus her husband is an intellectual property attorney. So gotcha. he puts his, um, you know, he adds his wisdom to the proprietary section. And, um, and then Kevin Harrington, the original Shark on Shark Tank, wrote the foreword. So you can go to Exit Rich at ExitRichBook.com for $24.79, which is less than Amazon. You don't have to wait till June. We will email you the digital download immediately when you order Exit Rich. And then we'll ship the hard copy to your doorstep for anyone that lives in the United States. Oh, nice. additional shipping. Plus, we'll give you, and this is just a limited time offer until the book launches in June. We'll give you a lifetime membership into the Exit Rich Book Club. The Exit Rich Book Club is where we have video training of me doing deep, deep dives into these different techniques and strategies, plus documents, documents to operate your business, documents to sell your business, documents such as policy and procedure manuals, org charts, employee handbooks, non-competes. To sell your business, we have sample letter of intents, purchase agreements, due diligence checklists, closing docs. And all these documents are there for your review and your downloads so you can use the templates. If you went to an attorney to recreate all these documents, it will cost you over $30,000. Yeah, that's not, attorneys are never cheap on that kind of stuff. So yeah, that's, okay. that's definitely good. And then the last thing is we give you a 30-day free membership in the Club CEOs, which is a mastermind, where we do hot seats and Q&As and really ask those transformational questions to get business owners unstuck so they can build to scale and sell. As far as where everyone can reach me, you can go to solidartucker.com. That's our main website. We sell businesses all over the United States. 
By the way, we're not just sell businesses. We buy businesses and flip them. I partner with business owners investing my expertise, resources, and capital in which to help build that business to sell. And Very good. Interesting. Yeah. So I, I was actually already up there this, earlier today looking at it. So just real well done. And I like I was where I saw all your six P's up there. So nice little, nice, good system there. And like I said, a lot of the, a lot of the good talking points. So I appreciate it there. Well, thank you for having me, Jeff. Thank you very much. And appreciate the time, the insight there. All right. Thank you. Have a great day. Too. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Building to Scale podcast. If you would like to share your entrepreneurial business growth story, please visit buildingtoscale.com slash guest. If you got something out of this interview, would you do both us and our guest a favor and share it on your social media accounts? Don't forget to hit subscribe in your player so that you don't miss any future episodes and make sure to reach out to Jeff Chastain on any of the major social media networks or check us out at admentis.com. 